0: Continuing our study through this book, Uh, we'll probably be here a few more weeks before I suspect I haven't had this, don't have this all planned out yet, but before we uh, take a break for the season of Advent and look to the coming of our Lord Jesus uh, in the flesh. Um, But uh, for now and for the weeks to come, we continue on in uh, Mark. You can follow along in your insult excuse me, insult, in your insert. Follow along in your insert if you don't have a copy of God's Word. Today, we're going to take quite a large chunk of uh, the book of Mark. Uh, We're going to look at two passages that Mark gives us uh, pretty close to one another. One passage is where we would be next um, as we walk through this Uh, account of the Lord Jesus verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And then uh, the other account is a bit further uh, ahead, but we're going to bring it back to this week. And I want to take two accounts together that are remarkably similar, but I don't want to do that at the expense of you recognizing that there are two accounts that are remarkably similar and yet separated from one another. And what I mean by that is that when the, scriptures, when the Scriptures repeat something, we ought to take note. Right? It's the Gospel writers, it's Jesus' way of, of underlining and highlighting something that either the people there are missing, which indeed they are, but even something that we tend to miss, something that we tend to forget about. Of course, we've seen a lot of forgetfulness. We've seen a lot of density from the disciples and we uh, can easily stand in judgment over them and say, how can you miss what seems to be plain as day right in front of your nose? But we really would be no different And so let's look at this passage, these two passages, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. And then we're going to jump to the next chapter, uh, verse 32 through 45 of chapter 10. If you're able, I invite you to stand as I read God's word. Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 37. This is God's holy word. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they went to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Who sent me? Jumping to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and they said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Some of you have heard me speak about this before, but when our kids were little, you know, toddler age, um, I used to play this game with them as their father uh, of course, kids at that age, they have an affinity towards their mother, uh, who spends a lot of time with them. And so I would go uh, most recently with, with Whitney, and I would say, when she was a little tiny thing, uh, I would ask her, I would say, Whitney, who do you like better? Mommy or daddy? But you don't ask it like that. You say, Whitney, who do you like better? Mommy? or daddy. And that usually worked. That usually worked. Just put the right uh, emphasis on the right syllable and you get what you want. It's the smallest of illustrations to describe that I want to be not just loved by my children. I want to be great in their eyes. Don't we want to be great in the eyes of others, particularly in the eyes of our children? I mean, in every sphere of life, in our jobs, in our communities, we want to be respected. We want to be put in those places of of influence where affirmation comes. And there's glory with being associated with those at the top. You did a great job. See, the disciples in these two instances, remarkably similar instances, they illustrate this reality for us, this reality of the human heart. And of course, we gather here this morning, we say greatness is a good thing to strive for. It's not necessarily a bad thing to want to be great, but what does that greatness mean? look like? And what is that greatness for? You see, Jesus here with His disciples and the Holy Spirit with us here today wants to realign our perception of greatness and our path to greatness. Two truths for us to consider this morning as we walk through these passages. And the first one's this. The mission of the Messiah is death. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. We're actually going to spend most of our time on the second truth, but this first truth has got to be there. It's the foundation of all that comes. And it's where both of these passages, both of these accounts begin. The mission of the Messiah is death. See, as we pick up our story in verse 30, where we left off last week, we learn that Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling through Galilee, but they're doing it quietly, clandestinely. And that ought to cause us to say, why? Why, Jesus, don't you want people to know? Well, the reason is, remember what happened last week. came down from the the mountain of glory and there was a boy with an unclean spirit and disciples with weak faith and it all had to be dealt with and it was not Jesus's mission see there's not an instance in the new testament where Jesus comes into a town comes into a village to set up a tent and start a healing ministry or to exercise demons. He didn't come to do that. Now, did he do that? Absolutely he did that. His compassion, his care for his people, for the brokenness that he sees, compels him to do that. But ultimately, not in a bad way, not in an uncaring way, but ultimately Jesus healing, Jesus casting out demons, that is a distraction from what he came to do. He came to proclaim. He came to preach. And what was his message? Verse 31, the Son of Man came to die. Chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus' purpose. This is the greatness of his mission. And this is the greatness of God's plan of redemption that He is trying to communicate to these disciples who aren't getting it. They're struggling to understand. Understandably so. And He's trying to get it across. It began back in chapter 8 in the last chapter in verse 31. And Peter rebukes Him. Remember, no, Jesus, that's not going to happen to you. And He says, get behind Me, Satan. That is My mission. It happens here in 9.31. And finally again in chapter 10, verse 45 or even before that. And every time Jesus brings it up, he's adding more detail. You can see the more detail in chapter 10 than there was in verse or in chapter 9 than there was in verse 8. He's going to be delivered over to the Romans. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be flogged. And then he's going to be killed. This is Jesus' path to glory. This is Jesus' greatness. This is the nature of his kingship the mission of the Messiah is that he came to die. And so Jesus is resolutely marching to Jerusalem because that's what's necessary in this grand story of redemption. So what does that mean for us? Let me just take us to a couple different places. First of all, this is our Savior Jesus came not for himself, and we've seen all along in Mark, we've seen these glimpses of his humanity and his real wrestling with temptation to derail his mission. Maybe I don't have to drink that cup. Maybe I don't have to go to that cross. Maybe I don't have to walk resolutely to that death. And every instance, Jesus stays resolute for the will of the Father in heaven and for the love that he has for those whom the Father has given him. This is a real man. This is the God-man who came for you, who came for me, and who stayed true to his course of suffering and then glory. And if he didn't, we wouldn't be sitting here. So praise God for the mission of the Messiah. Praise God for the completed mission of the Messiah. But secondly, I think this has an effect on us as a church corporate. It has an effect on us as as individuals beyond just worshiping and giving thanks for our Savior. First of all, as a church, as a church family, as a church corporate... Our mission as a church is to bear witness to this reality, to bear witness to this mission, to what has been done for us. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, so we implore you, be reconciled to God. And I bring this up and I say this because there is a lot of things that we as the church can be about. A lot of good things that we as the church can be about. But this is what we must be about. And that's why this gathering and this word proclaimed ought never change until the Lord Jesus comes back. Not in this place, not in any other church on this planet. Because that is our primary mission, to give testimony that Jesus came to die to make men and women right with God. And so yes, we pursue other things. But we must be about this. So that's the church corporate, that's us as a body. But what about us individually? Well, we can go back to the disciples. They're struggling to understand the nature of the Messiah. They've confessed Jesus is the Christ. But their conversations in both of these accounts, right? Jesus gives this declaration this is my mission. And where do both the conversations go with these disciples? See, they are wanting crowns of celebration. In Jerusalem, when what is waiting for them is crosses, crosses of suffering. And so the application for us, for them, is the same. Not just that the mission of the Messiah is death, but that true greatness comes through the death of self that's the second place that i think this passage takes us that true greatness comes through the death of self and those th- that phrase that truth that is not doesn't fit in with our words for greatness or how we achieve greatness in our careers in our lives in our communities words like achievement climbing the ladder clawing our way to the top, accomplishing Jesus' death. That's how to be truly great. Die. Two conversations result in both these passages as Jesus reminds his disciples of his mission, and then they go off into their own little conversations. The first conversation is not very detailed. We don't hear the content. The second one we hear a lot more. We know who's talking, and we know what they're saying in chapter 10. And so let's focus there, although both conversations are similar. And in fact, they may just be a continuation of of one conversation. When you read this passage in chapter 10, when you hear it read to you, what is your impression of, of James and John in chapter 10? I mean, Jesus has just poured out for the third time to his best friends the certainty and the circumstances of his death. And he's added the most vivid details of what he is going to endure physically as their Messiah. And where do they go? Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. You're the most loyal followers of Jesus. And and they can't get their eyes off themselves. I don't know all that's going on in their head. But I know that at times, they're not so far off from where I am. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, James and John are always mentioned together in the Gospels. James is listed first, probably because he's the oldest. We know very little about James. He's never talked about by himself. But we know that James and John were fireballs. They had fiery personalities. They were zealous. They were passionate guys, which is why Jesus gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder. Back in Mark chapter 1, Jesus called James and John together out of their profitable family fishing business. Mark chapter 1 verses 19 and 20, we read that he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets, and immediately he called them. They left their father in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And that's what I want to highlight on for just a second, with their hired servants. You see, James and John came from a family, they came from a business where they knew something of greatness, they knew something of privilege. They had hired servants, they had positions of authority. And Jesus had included James and John, along with Peter, in his inner circle, in this inner circle of friends. I mean, they were already in their fleshly minds and aspirations. They were already climbing the ladder of succession for their future King and Messiah. And so they recognized that Jesus' glory waits in Jerusalem and so as they keep heading towards Jerusalem, they can't get out of their minds. It's coming. John, it's coming. We've got to make plans. Peter, Peter's just going to have to fend for himself. We've got to seize this opportunity to get in, to get in the place of position and power and prestige And this is all of them. This is not just James and John. In verse 41, the disciples are thinking, I can't believe those guys stabbed us in the back. Why didn't we think of that first? As James and John say, Jesus, can we sit to your right, to your left, when you're enthroned? See, it's the idol of self. The idol of self. And we're no different than them. And that's what I think the Holy Spirit needs to work in us in whatever specific individual way he deems necessary this morning. What we need is gospel humility. What we need is to die to self. One of the pastors in our denomination, Tim Keller, wrote a great little book which I commend to you. Uh, called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I want to read you a quote from that little book. He says, True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self Forgetfulness brings. See, true greatness comes through the death of self, Jesus says. And notice the graciousness of Jesus' response to James and John, these guys who have said something that's almost unbelievable. He says, What do you want me to do for you? You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? Now, the imagery of the cup in the Old Testament is something that's frequently used as divine judgment. We find this all over. Ezekiel chapter 23, God announces judgment on his people and he says, you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large, a cup of horror and desolation. And Isaiah 51 says, wake yourself, stand, O Jerusalem, for you have drunk the, from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jesus brings to mind these horrible pictures of drinking down to the last drop, the wrath. The wrath of God for sin. So that's the cup that Jesus brings up. And he says, do you know this cup that I'm about to drink? But what about baptism? We, this is a, a picture that Jesus gives. It's maybe a little bit more confusing for us. We think about baptism, we think about our babies, we think about our little ones being sprinkled or having water poured on their heads, but baptism has with it this this picture, this aspect of, of judgment. Paul in 1 Corinthians links baptism with the ordeal of the Israelites walking through the Red Sea, just before it collapses and overwhelms and overcomes the Egyptians who are pursuing God's people. Peter in 1 Peter 3 links it to the story of Noah and to the overwhelming flood. You see, the point is that Jesus has to drink this cup of wrath and that Jesus has to endure the overwhelming waters of Judgment. And these men, these disciples, yeah, we're up for it. No, they're not. Jesus says, no, you're not. You don't know what you're asking. You are going to have to die to yourself. And yet, as one author put it, they were looking for a crown without a cross, glory without suffering, honor without humility. But Jesus says, you'll get it. You, brothers, will get it. In Acts 12.2, the first time James is mentioned without his brother John by his side is to give an account of a sword passing through James because he believes in Jesus. In Revelation 1, we find his brother John exiled for his faith on the island of Patmos. Patmos. Well, oh, they didn't drink the same cup that Jesus drank, but they drank a cup. They died to self. They gave their lives. You see, Jesus sits in heaven now enthroned at the right hand of the Father, having finished the work He came to do. And that path to glory and exaltation and true greatness came not through thrones waiting for Him in Jerusalem. Not a crown of gold to be put on His head, but a crown of thorns. And a cross of wood. And not James and John on His left and right. But criminals. In the same way, Jesus reminds us this morning, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So here's the question for us this morning, the question for our hearts. If true greatness comes through the death of self, Then, where is the idol of self this morning? Are you striving to put it to death? If you're like me, the idol of self is alive and well. It's kicking and screaming every single day in my relationship with my wife, in my relationship with my children, in my priorities to comfort and pleasure in my impatience on the freeway. You name it. And Jesus says true greatness comes through the death of self. But what can possibly give me motivation to do that? Well, the very last verse. Chapter 10, verse 45. We we come full circle. The mission of the Messiah is death. Chapter 10, verse 45 the ransom. See, Jesus didn't come to just give an example of service, an example of selflessness, an example of humility. If that's all that he came to do, he'd be like a bunch of other wise men and women. But no, Jesus came to give of himself. Jesus made himself the great price given for us. And that's the gospel. This is love Captive to the law, captive to ourselves, captive to our own idols, Jesus has freed us by taking the cup of wrath, by taking the waters of judgment. Why? So that we can now be different. So that we can now actually have the power to live self-forgetting, thinking of others, dying every day to ourselves. And it's through that, that we have the power to show a watching world what greatness is really about. We have the power to to love a life of humility and care and love that is otherworldly, that has no reason or rationale. Because of the ransom made for us, we have the power to be servants of all. May God give us grace to do that. May God show us how to do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you once again for your word this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who completed his mission, who said those three great words It is finished. And you vindicated him, rising him from the dead, exalting him to your right hand where he sits now, making his enemies his footstool. Father, thank you for that mission of death, of resurrection, of exaltation as we seek to now follow in our Savior's footsteps because of what he's done. And because of our union with Him, because of that Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that You have given to us, we can now die to ourselves. Show us how to do that this afternoon, tomorrow morning, that we might indeed be used by You to show the world what true greatness looks like. Oh, Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.